You're listening to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Since our last podcast, Congress has moved forward with the reconciliation process to pass President Biden's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, passing the budget resolution on a party-line vote in both chambers and leaving behind any prospect of working on a bipartisan piece of legislation. With approval of the budget resolution, this unlocked the fast-track reconciliation process, which is filibuster-proof and requires only a simple majority in the Senate to pass. So I I just want to start off by saying that the Oxford Dictionary definition for reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relations. <laughs> I think that is as far as you can get from what reconciliation actually means when it comes to the Senate. Because you only use reconciliation when you've had a breakdown of governing in Congress. And as we'll discuss throughout this uh, podcast, reconciliation was invented basically for, I think, a noble reason, but it is a very, very, very partisan thing to do. And you can look in the past, here in the recent past, of of things that have been done by reconciliation, and it's, you know, the 2017 tax cuts, very partisan. The repeal of Obamacare, very partisan. Obamacare, very partisan. And the Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003, mm-hmm. very, very partisan. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's a not a useful tool. I'm just saying it's extremely partisan. And when it comes into play, whatever is being discussed immediately becomes pick a side. Yeah. There's not a lot of wiggle room for bipartisanship. Yeah, you're exactly right, Kyle. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but it's really used when the margins of the majority are very, very slim. And that party that's currently in power is looking to act as swiftly as they possibly can to enact a certain agenda. Uh, But before we get into all of that, a little bit more information about the nuts and bolts of reconciliation. The budget reconciliation process was actually created by the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. So when you're thinking about some legislation, it's relatively young. Um, And it's intended to allow for expedited consideration of basically spending revenue and debt limit legislation. And it's meant to reconcile the the, um, aspirations of the budget resolution with, you know, actual enacted legislation. So it starts once Congress adopts a budget resolution that includes the reconciliation instructions and directs certain committees to craft legislation that meet those budgetary targets. So increasing or decreasing their federal revenues, spending levels, or the debt ceiling. And um, since its first use in 1980, it's been used 25 times uh, to pass reconciliation bills. And as you mentioned, most of those examples um, include passage of legislation that, you know, made it through on very narrow margins that existed within the majority. The tricky part about reconciliation, however, is that it has to comply with the infamous bird rule. So bird rule, is that like a tweet, tweet, tweety bird, bird rule? Uh, no. <laughs> that is <just laughs> referring to former Senator Bird of West Virginia, who actually sponsored this rule back in um, 1985 in response to concerns that committees were including recommendations in their reconciliation 
submissions that were beyond what they were supposed to be achieving um, as far as reaching their their budgetary goals, as we mentioned, um, that were established in the budget resolution. And while any senator can raise a point of order on the floor when they're going through the budget vote, um, or excuse me, the the vote of the reconciliation bill against provisions that they believe don't actually meet the requirements of the Byrd Rule, the Senate Budget Committee is actually required to submit for the record a list of provisions considered to be extraneous. But let me explain what extraneous means and what those provisions um, include. So it includes those that don't produce a change in spending or revenues, that um, put the instructed committee out of compliance with its budget target, are outside the jurisdiction of the committee that submitted the provision, produce a change in spending or revenues that is merely incidental to the non-budgetary components of the provision. That's the real kicker, and we'll come back to that. Um, And then would increase the deficit for a fiscal year beyond the period covered by the reconciliation measure or recommend changes in Social Security. So, I mean, what you're saying is that that, um, there's a lot lot to this. We want to break it down, but this is – you can't just pass – pass anything by reconciliation. There are definitely some major guardrails that are put in place and all of those things have to impact the budget in some way, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's actually a really important person that helps to enforce all of these rules called the Senate Parliamentarian. And that's actually one of the things that we're waiting on right now um, to see how she's going to rule on certain provisions And these provisions are particularly important to progressives, um, like raising the minimum wage and a a mandate that would uh, require businesses to provide paid sick leave. So who does the the parliamentarian actually work for? So that's a good question. Um, The parliamentarian is technically working for the Senate as as a body. Um, It's expected and traditionally, you know, been performed as a nonpartisan role. And that individual is technically hired by the secretary of the Senate. Um, But the majority leader actually has a lot of ability to influence the hiring and firing of the person in that role. And it can really be based on personal preference, um, or whether or not they like the way the parliamentarian rules on legislation that's important to them. Um, We actually saw in 2001, the majority leader at the time was a Republican, Trent Lott, and he fired, or there are rumors that he fired the parliamentarian at the time, Robert Dove, after he produced a series of rulings that impacted the negotiation of the budget that was ultimately used to pass the Bush tax cuts of 2001. And, you know, this was another instance where we had a split 50-50 Senate and, you know, the the stakes were very high. Right. Yeah. So is the parliamentarians ruling final or can it be changed? Like, do they have the end-all say when it comes to these types of things? Um. You know, typically the Senate has deferred to the parliamentarian's guidance, and um, what she does is she will hear from both the majority and the minority side, uh, the the staff of the budget committee in the Senate, Um, and each side will sort of make their case for the various provisions uh, within the reconciliation bill. And they will either strike provisions that the parliamentarian deems um, do not meet 
the requirements of the bird rule or they'll tweak them in order to make them comply. And, you know, one good example of that is when Republicans tried to repeal Obamacare, uh, the parliamentarian ruled that repeal of the individual mandate would lead to a budgetary effect that was merely incidental and thus a violation of the bird rule. So instead of a repeal, they ended up zeroing it out. So keeping the actual mandate in place, but with a, a zero penalty, a zero dollar penalty. And it, and that actually had a direct budgetary impact. And this provision, even though it didn't make it through Obamacare repeal, was actually included in the provi- in, as a provision in the 2017 tax cut bill. But the Senate rules allow the presiding officer of the Senate, or in this case, it'll probably be the vice president, since she's going to be making a tie-breaking vote, because we expect this to be, you know, be voted 50, down 50, on 50. Right. Yep, exactly. Um, and, and it sounds like, according to those rules, she can disregard the parliamentarian's advice. And... Um, you know, according to reports, progressives are beginning to put pressure on the vice president to to go against that advice. You know, it'll be interesting to see, though, because there are moderate Dems um, like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia who have strongly warned against breaking such an important precedent because whenever you do something like that, it only leads to further partisan fights in the future and, you know, likely future Congresses ignoring the parliamentarian's advice. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, setting precedent is important. And, you know, the precedent has already been set when it comes to using re- reconciliation. And and I think the precedent has also been set in that it's always going to be partisan from here on out. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. Um, it, it's very unfortunate because there are a lot of things that need the bipartisan um, uh, debate that comes into play. And, you know, I'm reminded of a, an old Johnny Isaacson quote. I'm not sure if it's Senator Isaacson's quote or if he just used it all the time, but he talked about the difference in the House of Representatives in the U.S. Senate and that the House of Representatives is like a steaming hot cup of coffee filled to the brim that's about to spill out onto your hand. And the Senate is that saucer that catches the the hot coffee before it overflows and spills your hand. I mean, what he's saying there is the the Senate is where cooler heads are supposed to prevail and where the Senate takes into account what the House is doing, but is supposed to be more thoughtful and more bipartisan and more collegial and cordial. And that is not what we're seeing at all. And, you know, I mean, you take right now the, the, the discussion around the minimum wage. I think there are, um, you know, as you mentioned, progressives are really, really wanting to push um, the vice president and the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, to increase the minimum wage to $15. And, you know, I get that. Okay. But there are others, there's room in the Senate for a a debate, a healthy debate on this, mm-hmm. because you have senators like Josh Hawley, of all people, who's who's open to increasing the minimum wage. He just wants to do it slightly different, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's even open to a fifteen dollar minimum. Exactly, wage. right? Not not just increasing it a dollar, but really meeting the Democrats where they want. 
and then you also have people like Mitt Romney who who want to increase the minimum wage, but he wants to try to solve the problem. Like the thing is, okay, let's increase the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. You're going to have the same exact conversation in ten years from now because fifteen's not enough. Right. And so Mitt Romney wants to have a discussion of how do we fix the problem. Well, do we tie it to inflation mm-hmm. where it automatically goes up? I, I I don't know the answer, but I know the answer should come from a healthy debate and not passing things or ramming things through through the reconciliation process. Uh, you know, it's just again, I I miss my uh, the Senator Isaacsons of the world who have that mindset of the Senate is not to be used as a tool to get partisan things through, but a check on the House of Representatives and the administration, frankly. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, that's exactly right. And it's certainly one of the downsides to the process of reconciliation that it does then limit that opportunity for a more deliberative process that would occur otherwise. Um, but again, as we said, you know, this is one of those tools that exists in the toolbox for um, a party when they are controlling both chambers in the Senate and the White House to get their um, their priorities into actual sure. into law. And as we know, uh, the political cycle changes very swiftly, and that window typically only lasts for two years. If it lasts longer than that, that's a really rare occasion. Um, and after that period is when we begin to see. As you have mentioned, maybe not the cooler heads prevail, but that more collaborative process come into play because it's required. Bipartisanship then is required for anything to get done. Right. Yeah. I mean, and this is, I I think I I do want to... To, to say something in that this isn't new. Like both sides use this tool, right? I mean, right. the Republicans have used this over and over again with tax reform. And they mm-hmm. have rammed through tax reform. You know, I I like lower taxes. And so I'm okay with having lower taxes. But it sometimes it's how you approach things that, um, you know, getting buy-in and going through that deliberative, deliberative process is helpful for the longevity of whatever you're passing, right? Because mm-hmm. immediately after passing both the 2001, 2003, and the 2017 tax cuts, Democrats wanted to turn around and use reconciliation to <laughs> try to get rid of them, right? Well, I, and that's one of the dangers of going through this process is that it, be, it, it becomes a talking point uh, for the other side to get that majority or or that party that's in power out of office. Right. Which we've seen time and time again. It's why Republicans have been fighting against Obamacare for the past decade. And uh, Democrats argue that, you know, the tax cuts, um, whenever they were enacted, (laughs) are actually hurtful to whatever, you know, entity it is that they are, are looking to gain votes from. So at the beginning of the Trump administration, reconciliation was used a couple times, right? Twice? Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it was used twice during that first year of the Trump administration. Um, and so technically, there can only be one budget per fiscal year although amendments can be made to it. Um, so it naturally follows that there should just be one reconciliation bill per fiscal year. However, um, you know, because 
of the fact that the fiscal year runs from October 1st to September 30th, it's actually possible for Congress to adopt or revise budget resolutions for two different fiscal years during the same calendar year. That sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo. So it's the nerdy uh, (laughs) calendar year versus fiscal year that we all tend to Mm -hmm. get mixed up on. Yeah. So, um, for example... The budget resolution that was just passed to start this reconciliation process was for FY 2021, which started on October 1st of 2020. So we were already a quarter, you know, through the first quarter of fiscal year 2021 when Congress actually passed the updated budget resolution that included the reconciliation instructions. but this Congress could choose to go on ahead and pass an FY 2022 budget and have another opportunity to pass another reconciliation bill later this year. And to your point, that's exactly what occurred at the start of the Trump administration in calendar year 2017. They passed a budget resolution uh, for FY 2017 that included instructions for them to consider repeal of Obamacare. And then later that year, the FY 2018 budget resolution was agreed upon in October and used to pass the 2017 tax cuts, which were then signed into law in December, uh, late December of 2017. So what you're telling me is uh, we're, we're going to see this again this year. I, I think I think so. That I just don't see any way around it. I think that the Biden administration's list of priorities is far too long for them not to at least consider using reconciliation again. Um, and even as we're seeing now, their majority, their, the majority's majority, right, is slim. They've got a lot of different voices and factions within their own party that make getting to agreement a challenge. Republicans experience the exact same thing. And right. so they're going to want to give themselves every opportunity to negotiate, work out all the details um, so that they can actually get something passed. So it is, I don't, I wouldn't say likely, um, but I, I guess it's, it's likely it will come up that um, a discussion about repealing, say like the 2017 tax cuts, will probably have a discussion on that. I would say that it is likely we are going to see changes to the tax code. Yeah. One way or another. I think the only difference there is you have to get uh, um, Joe Manchin, who I like to call the Senate Majority Leader, on board because <laughs> uh, he's that middle of the ground uh, Democrat who, uh, when it, when you have a fifty fifty Senate, you can't lose him, mm-hmm. and and so. He, whether Schumer may run the day job and have the title of Senate Majority Leader, you're not going to have Joe Manchin cutting taxes deep. Now, he may be open to some certain tax cuts, but I don't see him supporting a broad repeal of the entire 2017. Yeah, I mean, I would assume that um, Senator Manchin is is not unopposed to certain tax increases um but you know he's going to do what's best for his constituents and what you know keeps them voting for him and in his job um but i think you know it'll be interesting to see you know what comes in the you know in the in the next several months out of the administration i don't think we're going to see as many surprises as we saw in the previous administration i think they're going to be pretty clear and intentional about what they plan to do um but for 
the meantime, then I think we there are a couple of things we should be looking out for in the coming days and weeks. And the first thing is going to be how the parliamentarian actually ends up ruling on those provisions that we kind of talked about earlier, the minimum wage um, and, you know, requiring businesses to um, provide sick leave to their employees, those types of things. And then how Democrats plan to move forward once they receive that ruling. Um, and then... <clears throat> For budget nerds like me, it's always fun to watch the actual passage of the budget resolution, or excuse me, the reconciliation bill on the Senate floor. Uh, as you know, and we discussed earlier, with reconciliation, there is no filibuster, but there is a 20-hour debate limit. And once that is expired, there is no limit on how many amendments can be offered by members. And so they go into this crazy session called Votorama. You call this exciting. <laughs> I, this is why I love working with you because we, we have so many different things that we're good at and that we enjoy. I would rather watch paint dry. <laughs> well, I am sorry you're missing out on all of the drama. <laughs> uh, it's one of those that lasts all night well into the next day and, and you just never know what, what folks are going to do. But, you know, it's, it's one of those opportunities, especially for the minority to make uh, members, you know, take hard votes, things like that. So right. it's always interesting to see what, what they come up with. It's um, great to see the creativity from staff in those <laughs> moments. Well, I, I mean, reconciliation is not the only really polarizing and political activity going on right now in the Senate. Um, you know, Biden has a handful of his uh, cabinet picks have made it through the confirmation process. This is always polarizing and always, I mean, we you've personally helped, uh, you know, a secretary go through confirmation and, and, and you know, it's it's... Um, a very difficult process to prepare for. I mean, it is uh, nerve-wracking. I, I get all that. But there is one individual right now who I think is having a, a, a little bit harder of a time than most. Um, her name is Neera Tandon, and she's in line to be OMB uh, Biden's OMB director. Mm -hmm, right. um, unfortunately for uh, Ms. Tandon, <laughs> she has... Enjoy tweeting over the past few years, like former presidents and others have. Uh, the problem is she liked to tweet about members of the Republican Party and, and people who would eventually have to confirm her in a Senate, um, including Bernie Sanders and Mitch McConnell and others. And so this is a take note, kids. Like if you ever want to potentially be... Uh, Senate confirmed, you may want to not call people like Ted Cruz. She said, uh, um, vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. She called Mitch McConnell uh, Voldemort. Um, also like to call him Moscow Mitch. I mean, I I just got a chuckle out of these. Like I, To me, these are funny. Um, but the peop these are people who have to vote for or against her to be OMB director. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you know, Joe Manchin has already said he's a no. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's going to be a single Republican that votes for her. So she's she's done. Like, that's it. There's no way to be confirmed at this point if you lose Joe Manchin and every Republican. Yeah. And so, you know, the, everything that's going on right now is is very contentious. <laughs> but I just, I, I don't want to laugh at her because I know it's in a very difficult place. But I also think... 
it's kind of petty on this some of these senator sides. I mean, like she said some bad things, but I just think this is the world that we live in today that you're not going to get a you know confirmed by the Senate because you said vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. I mean, it's an interesting episode of Mean Girls. It feels like <laughs> exactly right. I mean, she's clearly going to. I mean. Uh, Biden's chief of staff has already said that they're going to keep fighting for her to be OMB yeah. director. If she doesn't get confirmed, she's still going to have a powerful position within the White House. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be OMB director. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's important for folks to understand, though, the position of OMB director, because even though it's not one that really gets into the public eye or in the public domain a whole lot, it is a very powerful position because OMB, which stands for Office of Management and Budget, um, is they are responsible for leading the federal government's annual budget production. They sign off on all spending, and they also have a very heavy hand in all federal regulations. And so, in short, OMB is play, playing a critical role in the both the policy formation but also implementation across the entire federal government. And you and I experienced this firsthand time and time again during our entire time in the federal government, both, you know, when we were on the Hill, but also um, we really felt it when we were at HHS and then at CDC. Yeah, I mean, OMB is one of those things that, like you said, you just go ask someone on the street, what is it? And they're like, no one can tell you. But they have probably one of the single largest platforms within the federal government, the White House, to be able to really help things get moving, grease the the wheels to get things that they want done, done. They also have the ability to completely use their bureaucratic red tape to stop anything and everything. Mm -hmm. And we saw that one example, we saw that multiple times, but one of the times specifically at the CDC where we saw this is with um, the CDC's work around PFAS. Now, for for some of you who aren't familiar with PFAS, it's a a family of chemicals um, that's used in things like firefighting foam and nonstick pans and and things like that. It's um, it's like a water repellent sort of chemical, and it's a huge family of chemicals. The problem with PFOS and PFOA is that these chemicals don't break down in nature. Mm-hmm. They stay around for a really, really long time, and we're still learning a lot of information about the health effects of how this will affect your body and any diseases or um, conditions that could be caused because of exposure or long-term exposure to PFOS. And the CDC simply wanted to put out a, you know, what they call it's like a a certain level of uh, these chemicals that would be in groundwater. Mm -hmm. And And it wasn't saying that the level, like if we went and took a sample in a ground well, levels of PFAS in the water over this level is dangerous. That's not what they're saying. It's just, hey... This isn't natural. We need to find where it's coming from. Well, the long story is this seems like a relatively simple thing to get done. But after two years... It should be pretty simple when you're just trying to put out science that's like meant to protect people. Right. And OMB spent two years stopping it and it has yet to see the light of day. Mm. And that was for many different reasons, but... 
certain individuals within the White House were able to use OMB in the OMB um, regulatory approval process to stop things that they like or don't like. I mean, that they don't like and help things that they do like. And so this is, we say all this to say that this is an extremely important position. And, and you know, it is important that someone who runs OMB that is thoughtful mm-hmm. when it comes to what the position actually does, yeah. which is, can be very dangerous in my mind if they're stopping science from seeing the light of day. Well, and I think that's a really good point because at the end of the day, that role and the roles under it are filled by people who are not elected officials and yet have the ability to influence and shape uh, the implementation of, of federal law and federal regulation to such an incredible degree that, to your point, they can stop things from happening or require things to happen. And when there isn't as much transparency or, or, you know, there is undue influence, um, you know, that can, that can just be, that can be dangerous. I mean, you know, it's, it's again, somewhat like the reconciliation process. There are pros and cons to it. Um, I think one of the pros to that, you know, that office, that role is the fact that they can just as easily deregulate sure. as they can regulate. And in some cases that is, it's a wonderful thing if it, you know, reduces the red tape and makes it easier for, you know, businesses to create jobs. But at the same time, we want them to be doing it safely and according to the law. Uh, you know, again, it's just one of those double-edged doors. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, as a reminder, you can find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, don't forget to sus- subscribe, and if you have a moment, leave a positive review. Uh, remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.